You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. As you're being seated, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 35, we do have the notes uh, accessible for you um, in our Google Drive folder that you can uh, see through our bulletin and access the link there. So if you'd like to access the slide notes um, today, you're more than welcome to. Genesis chapter 35 um, picks up where we left off last week with uh, the defilement of Dinah uh, and the retaliation by Jacob's sons um, when they went after the Shechemites for what they had done to their sister. Uh, You'll remember over the past couple of weeks we've been talking specifically about the topic of reconciliation within this narrative here in Genesis, and so we've seen reconciliation take place between Esau and Jacob um, and how that worked itself out. We talked as believers that we have the responsibility to pursue reconciliation, whether we're at fault or whether somebody else is at fault. We're to pursue reconciliation simply because of the fact that we have experienced reconciliation uh, with our Heavenly Father. And so we have that responsibility to pursue reconciliation with others. Last week we saw uh, the need to reconcile with our enemies, um, that we are to oppose evil Uh, but we're also to seek justice in a way that brings honor to God. And so we saw last week that the retaliation by uh, Jacob's sons ultimately results in uh, the people of God being a stench in the land, that they stink, uh, that the way that they've behaved and the way they've handled themselves and the way that they have reacted to being mistreated has resulted in them being hated by the people around them. And so we talked specifically about how that's obviously not the result that we're looking for. And we said that it ultimately flowed from halfway obedience by Jacob, that instead of taking his family back to Bethel, which is where the text seems to indicate they were supposed to be, he brings them within 20 miles of that place. And so we talked about halfway uh, obedience leading to possible disobedience. And so his kids fall into disobedience uh, ultimately because he has them in the wrong place. He's failed to be obedient as God has called him to. Uh, We talked about indifferent leadership leading to improper leadership, that Jacob fails to really step up and lead his family well when there's questions surrounding what they should do uh, in reaction to Dinah's defilement. He kind of fades off into the shadows, and so the brothers who are younger and immature step up, and and they're uh, led by zeal and passion and emotion, and it leads them into sin. And so we said indifferent leadership oftentimes leads to improper leadership by others. Somebody has to step up and lead. That's what the brothers ended the chapter with. We weren't going to let our sister be treated like a prostitute. And so we did the only thing we knew to do because you were not leading us to do something different. We said vengeful responses often lead to gospel hindrances. Um, That the way we act at home and the way we act in our neighborhoods and the way that we act uh, at work, if we're not careful, if we react vengefully towards our enemies, oftentimes it's going to create gospel hindrances. Um, And so we have to be very careful in how we react to circumstances in our life, because if we're not careful, we hinder the gospel from going forth based on um, us ruining our ability to testify to God's goodness based on how we've acted towards others. Today we come to Genesis chapter 35, and we pick up with Jacob's response finally now to the actions of his family. It says in verse 1, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. 
So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padanaram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Reconciliation with God taking place here in chapter 35, our summary sentence for today. Christians desiring to reconcile with God must take everything in their life that competes with God for their affection and bury it deep where it can no longer be accessed so that God can maintain his proper place as our supreme joy. Christians desiring to reconcile with God must take everything in their life that competes with God for their affection and bury it deep where it can no longer be accessed so that God can maintain his proper place as our supreme joy. For our kids, Christians are called to put away false gods, which would be anything that we love more than God. Okay, so there are things that compete in our life for our affection and for our joy, and and they're competing to be the source of our joy. And we know that as uh, image bearers of God, that we were created way back in Genesis chapter one and two, we saw this, that we were created to trust God and to find joy in God and to uh, experience him through our obedience and our love and our trust, that, that we were created as dependent creatures upon him. Um, and that he revealed himself as a good God, right? Like he revealed himself in a way where he made uh, a home and a job. Uh, he created a mate for Adam, right? Like all these inerrant desires, the things that we talk about wanting to have. And remember we referenced the game uh, that you play oftentimes as kids and that, that, that weird little contraption where it, it's supposed to reveal to you who you're going to marry and what job you're going to have and where you're going to live. Like these, these, these created desires in us, God takes care of them and satisfies them in the garden, right? Like he gives Adam and Eve uh, to each other and he gives them a job to do in the garden, gives them a place to live and, and promises to take care of them and provide and protect and, and gives them all the food they could ever need. Um, we're created to put our trust in him and to find our joy in him and our satisfaction in him. And in our sin, Romans 1 tells us that that the, the, the created things war against our souls and, and want to uh, claim our affection and our joy. 
Um, and, and oftentimes sinful man gives into that and, and replaces the creator with the created thing and, and begins to worship it. And we see here in uh, Genesis 35, Jacob having to call his family away from the worship of other things. And he takes drastic measures to make sure they can't go back to those things um, because he wants his family uh, to worship God and to put him in his appropriate place and to find joy in him and him alone. Um, so as Christians, we're called to put away false gods, anything that we would love more than God. Some introduction uh, thoughts to this chapter. First of all, this chapter describes Jacob's turnaround, but there's also some residual effects of his sin. And so as we get further into chapter 35, we're going to see some of the effects that come out of what happened in chapter 34. So Jacob doesn't get off scot-free. He sowed and he will reap what he sows and there will be effects to his sin that play out in the rest of this chapter. Um, The call to return to Bethel here, God presents this call at the very beginning of chapter 35. It's 30 to 40 years since the last time Jacob met God at Bethel. Um, You'll remember that he fled. Esau wants to kill him uh, due to his deception. And here we are again, deception by Simeon and Levi has now put Jacob in a position where he's fearful for his life once again. And so he will flee back to the same place where he fled the last last time that he was fearful for his life due to deception. And so uh, he makes this return to Bethel uh, somewhere between 30 and 40 years after the first time he met God at Bethel with the latter experience. This is the only time that a patriarch is told to build an altar. Um, All the other times that we've seen in Scripture, it's been self-generated. It's been spontaneous. It's been a reaction by the patriarch to what God has done. This is God having to get Jacob's attention and and to stir the indifferent leader back to leading his family. And this is the only time that we have a patriarch being commanded to build an altar, which again, I think lends support to the fact that he was supposed to be in Bethel all along. Um, That Abraham and and Isaac are kind of wandering around in the wilderness and they're building altars as a spontaneous reaction of worship. Here, Jacob has to be pushed in a direction. He has to be revealed specifically where he's supposed to be, uh, potentially because he didn't go where he was supposed to be in the beginning. Um, God had revealed himself back in 31 as the God of Bethel, uh, told him to return to his homeland and to worship him. And you'll remember that he had set up a vow that said, if you take care of me and provide for me and, and whatnot, you'll be my God and I'll worship you alone. And he had yet to go back to that place. Um, and so... God calls him back and commands him to go and to build this altar. It's the only time that a patriarch is commanded to do such a thing. God has kept his part of the vow, right? Jacob says, if you'll do all these things, bup, 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 then I'll, I'll serve you and you'll be my God. And so God has kept his part of the deal. He now expects Jacob to keep his. Um, it's also maybe interesting to know this is the last personal interaction that God has with someone in the book of Genesis. Um, Everything else after this is, is dreams and, and revelations that come not in a personal interaction. Um, we've seen God come to Jacob in the night. Uh, we've seen him come personally here in chapter 35. We've seen Abraham welcome visitors personally, right? Like God coming in pre-incarnate form before Jesus comes, coming in a way where he looks very human. Um, this is the last time we see this in the book of Genesis. Uh, moving forward, it's in the form of dreams with Joseph. Um, so let's jump in here to the text, uh, God calling Jacob back to Bethel. We're going to see God at work in, 
in some different places, specifically in some people's hearts. Um, and God is certainly in control of the hearts of mankind. He, he moves and directs where he wills. And we see this right off the bat with him working in the heart of Jacob. For our kids, God reminds Jacob that he is good. God reminds Jacob that he is good. God begins to work in Jacob's heart, and he comes to him and says, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. God commands him to return to Bethel and to build an altar. That's what God tells him, right? We don't have any indication that God tells him to do anything else. And this is really important because I think this ties into our, uh, our understanding of what repentance looks like, okay? God comes forward and says, you're wrong right now. You're in the wrong. You need to be in Bethel and you need to go there. You need to build an altar and you need to worship me. And that's all he commands him to do, right? He doesn't tell him, hey, get the false gods out. Get the earrings out. He doesn't give him instructions to do that, right? Everything else that Jacob does is spontaneous. It's spontaneous. And I think this is important because I think when genuine repentance is really happening, when somebody's really grasping the fact that I am not where I'm supposed to be spiritually right now, they don't have to be told what to do to get things right. They don't have to be given a list of, you need to stop doing this, you need to do this, you need to make this change and this change. God doesn't have to tell Jacob this, right? Like he says, you're in the wrong, you're supposed to be worshiping me and you're supposed to be doing it the way that I've told you to do it. And then Jacob just starts to make changes in his life, right? Like he's not given a list of do's and don'ts and and how-to's by God. It says that Jacob just comes out of this experience and says, okay, we gotta do some things here, family. Like we got, we got to clean some things up. And so he starts collecting gods and he starts cleaning up garments and, and he has a big washing of his family and everybody's taking a bath and, and getting cleaned up. None of this was told to Jacob that he had to do this. To me, this is evidence that God is really working inside of his heart because he's not being told exactly how to repent, right? Like he's not being told this is what you do to repent. He's been told, Hey, you need to start worshiping me. Like, you know how to worship me, and you need to start doing it rightly once again. And Jacob says, you're right. We've deviated. We've, we've moved uh, beyond where we're supposed to be, and we need to get this back to where it's supposed to be. And, and he starts to lead his family into repentance, into reconciling with God. Some things I want to point out to you here. First of all, remembering the goodness of God leads us to reconcile with God. Look how God incites Jacob to to repent. He says, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. This immediately conjures up uh, a memory for Jacob. 30, 40 years ago, I was running from my brother and I was scared to death and and he was pursuing me, and he wanted nothing more than to kill me. Like, he was bloodthirsty for me. And I fled to Bethel, and I experienced God at Bethel, and he was so good to me. 
and, and, and he made promises to me, and I've seen him keep those promises time and time again, and he's protected me from Laban, and he blessed me in the midst of being persecuted by Laban. And then when I leave Laban, he stops Laban. And then when I encounter Esau again, he's radically changed Esau's heart. And so immediately Jacob is reminded of God's goodness. And that leads him to wanting to go back to Bethel, right? Like it's not a, a drudgery thing for Jacob to go to Bethel now at this point. Like he's, he's been incited to go because he's remembering God's goodness And that's true for us. As we remember the goodness of God, it leads us to reconcile with God. And Jacob takes what he's experiencing and he takes it to his family and Jacob incites his family to follow his lead now by highlighting the impressive features of God in comparison to their false gods. Look what he says. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that, I make there an, so that I may make there an altar to the God. Which God? The one who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Jacob makes this presentation to the family and says, we're going to Bethel because the God who is waiting for us there, the God that we will worship there is an extremely good God. He's an extremely good God. God had saved him from Esau right? Like we've already mentioned that. He's a God who protects us. God continually answers Jacob in his distress. He's a God who helps us. Jacob goes on to say, he's a God who's been with me wherever I have gone. That, that special omnipresence that we've talked about, right? Like God's obviously with Jacob no matter where he goes, but he highlights that as an important feature to remember, Because it's not just that God is here all over creation, it's that he's specifically with us right here working good for our family. Jacob says, we're going to Bethel and we're gonna worship him because he's a good God and he protected me from Esau, which allowed all of you people to be born that are now a part of my family. And and he's been with us in all of our times of distress and he's carried us through those times. and, And we're in a time of distress right now because we're a stench in the land and people might invade us at any moment and kill us for what you two brothers have done. And And we're going to go because he's a God who has always been with us. We're going to go and worship him. Remembering the goodness of God leads us to reconcile with God. Number two, remembering the goodness of God leads us to renounce other gods. In order to worship properly, we are required to put away our other gods. We've already highlighted the fact that Jacob had vowed that God would be his God, and yet he had tolerated false gods in his midst. He doesn't have to be told about these gods. He knows about them, right? You'll remember Laban shows up and says, you stole my gods, and Jacob's like, I don't have your gods. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, no, you have our family idols. No, I don't. Like, search, search everything, and if you find them here, we'll kill the person that has them. Jacob was completely oblivious to the false gods before. God doesn't tell them about him now. So they have obviously made their circulation around the camp. Like Jacob knows about him now. It's not a secret. They're not keeping them hidden. On top of that, not only are the false gods of Rachel that she stole from Laban in their camp, you've also got everybody that just came from Shechem, right? Like these women and children, and they collected all the goods of the city. So they've brought back false gods with them too. 
So they have a plethora of false gods in their midst now. Um, And Jacob is fully aware of it. And he fully recognizes that something has to be done with these false gods. Remembering the goodness of God leads us to renounce other gods. And that's the only explanation for why these people are willing to give up these gods so thoroughly. Look, it says that um, they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Obviously, he did a good job of pitching the goodness of God because they responded and said, here you go. The God that you're offering us, the God that you want to take us to worship is better than what we have here. It's better than the gods of Shechem. It's better than the gods that we, we stole from Laban. And so they're willingly giving these things up, valuable, valuable things, right? Like these aren't like um, invaluable gods. They were certainly very valuable to Laban. They would have been valuable to the Shechemites, and they were probably made out of valuable materials. Um, and, and they give them up, and they surrender them. And this may have been a loss financially for them as well. But it's the goodness of God that leads them to renounce these other gods. And then number three, remembering the goodness of God leads us to return in obedience to him. The past faithfulness of God that's being highlighted by Jacob prompts his family to present obedience. See, it wouldn't have been okay for them to make the journey to Bethel and to start worshiping God there while bringing all the other false gods with them. It's not okay. Like God had said, I'm going to protect you and take care of you. And Jacob said, if you do these things, you'll be my God and my God alone. Not only must we stop worshiping other gods, we must rightly worship the true God. So on the flip side, it wouldn't have been okay just for them to get rid of their gods and not go to Bethel, right? Like it wouldn't have been okay for them to say, all right, we'll worship God, but we're going to keep worshiping him here. No, they had revealed will from God that they were supposed to go to Bethel. So Two things wouldn't have been okay. It wouldn't have been okay to simply go and build an altar, an altar and worship him there while tagging along all these other gods. And it wouldn't have been okay for them just to give up their other gods and keep doing what they were doing. There was a proper worship that wasn't being done that needed to be followed through with. The obedience requires that we put off the old man so that we can be clothed in the new man. This, this picture of them purifying themselves and changing their garments um, is also seen in Exodus chapter 19, verse 10. You can write this down, Exodus 19, 10 through 15. This is before God comes to them at Mount Sinai. God gives instructions to Moses that the people need to purify themselves. Um, it's this idea of a state of change. Um, unless we think that that's Old Testament only, it's a, spir- it's a picture of what spiritually is to be done in the New Testament, in the book of Ephesians. In uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Book of Revelation talks about us not staining our garments and being clothed in white garments. 
So it's this picture of repentance that the people are undergoing. It's this idea that, that we, have, we have sinned and we have tainted ourselves and that stuff needs to be washed and cleansed. And, and so they're changing their garments as an outward sign of what they want to see happen inwardly. Putting away the false gods, confessing their sins and changing their garments and undergoing this purification. So as they make this journey to Bethel, they've taken care of the things that they need to take care of. Some implications for us from this portion of the text that I want to share with you. First of all, I can fight sin best by remembering why God is so good and worthy of my trust. I can fight sin best by remembering why God is so good and worthy of my trust, right? So when we, when we counsel people that are, that are dealing with sinful situations and we, uh, you know, as elders, we tell them or we may incorporate um, uh, scripture memory and, and scripture reading, like those in and of themselves don't fix sinful problems, right? The reason that we drive people to the word when they are struggling with sin is because the intent and the hope is that as they come to the word regularly and constantly, which is probably something they haven't been doing regularly and constantly, right? Kind of going back to this picture, they haven't been worshiping God rightly. They've been worshiping false gods and allowing those gods to steal their affection and joy. So let's get rid of those things and let's recreate the habits that should be there. Let's go to Bethel, build an altar, worship him properly. We tell people as elders, and, and, and I know you do this in your accountability groups too, we drive people to the word of God, but it's important for us to remember why we do these things. Like memorizing scripture doesn't magically make you stop doing things. Reading the Bible isn't a potion that makes you stop doing things. It's meant, the intent behind it is to drive you to God's word so that you're reminded of his goodness. That you see God's goodness in scripture and you commit it to memory so that you can fight against sin, that you store it in your heart so that you don't sin against God. Not because you can just rattle off scripture, but because you can rattle off scripture that points you to his goodness. That's why I wanted us to spend time this morning talking and reminding ourselves of the big things that God has done in our life. Because those are the things that should help us persevere in the faith and say no to sin. Because ultimately, when we say yes to sin, we're saying this thing or this object or this act, it's better than God. It satisfies me better than God. It takes care of me better than God. And so for me, like when I was thinking through this morning about discussion questions, like three things immediately come to my mind when I think about God's goodness in my life. Three things that come to my mind that, that, that are clearly three of the biggest things that God has ever done for me. Um, one of them, I was sophomore in high school, um, and my dad had just recently um, stepped away from pastoring the church that I'd really only known. Um, we'd been going there since as far as I could remember. It was my life. Uh, my school was tied to my church, so the Christian school that I went to flowed out of our church, and so, I mean, it was everything that I knew. And my dad, I remember uh, overhearing the conversation my mom was having with her best friend. I, that was back in the day when you didn't have cell phones and you had to check to see if the, somebody else was off the phone so you could make a phone call. And so I'm checking constantly because there was somebody I wanted to call. And um, I, I ended up staying on the phone longer than I should have and listening to my mom talk about the fact that my dad was going to resign. And so 
I kind of knew that it was potentially coming. And, and when my dad resigned, he began to put out feelers and applications and uh, wanted to pastor. And we went around some churches in this area, and he preached and looked at possibly working there. And all the while, there was this big question mark as to whether I was going to graduate from my Christian school or not. And then we took a trip out to Colorado, and um, we candidated at a church out there. And I remember praying against it. I remember praying, God, don't let us go here. Like, I, it, it's my sophomore year. I've got junior and senior year ahead. Football's important to me. My friends are important to me. I remember praying against it. Um, and for the longest time, I thought that was selfish. And I thought that, uh, but, but looking back on it, knowing where my dad was at, like, it was the best thing that God could have ever done to not move our family there. Um, I had selfish reasons for not wanting to go. So I don't believe that, that God answered my prayers directly for the reasons that I had. But I think God protected our family greatly. Um, because the things that were issues with my dad's ministry would have gone with us there, and it would have been uh, it would have been very difficult there. But my life would have gone in a completely different direction had we moved, um, and that was a huge turning point in my life. In the fact that it didn't turn, that we stayed right where we were, um, that I finished out right where I was, um, and it put me on a path to liberty. It put me on a path to meeting guys that are so important to me. Uh, John and Rob, uh, guys at Snowbird that have radically shaped my sanctification. Um, that was a huge thing that God did in my life. And at the time, again, it was motivated by selfish reasons for why I didn't want to go. More mature now, I can look back and realize that God protected us from a lot of things had we gone. Um, and it was a huge thing that God did in my life. Um, secondly, was how God handled my dad and, and the affair that he was in with, with, uh, with my mom and, and the relationship that was broken there because of the woman that he was in the affair with. Forced me to move home from Virginia. Forced me to reevaluate everything I was doing with my future. Um, led me to Snowbird where, where God blessed me with, with Lauren as my wife. And, and that's a huge thing that I look back on because that was such a dark time in my life as far as the circumstances around me. Uh, I mean, everything was just completely ripped from under me. Everything that I knew, everything that I trusted in, as far as our family unit was was devastated overnight for me. It had been going on for years, but for me, overnight, I went from thinking everything was fine to everything's not fine. And I can see God's, God's uh, imprint on uh, everything that flowed out of that. Um, the fact that, that I moved home and probably never would have had that not happened. Um, probably would have never ended up working at Snowbird again. Wouldn't have met Lauren um, and so that's a huge thing that God did in my life. And, and I can testify to his goodness and how he, he took us through a very dark time as a family. Me and my sister and my mom carried us through it and has worked so many good things from it. And then probably the, other, the third biggest thing that I can look back on and see God doing is how he led me to Trinity, which has allowed me to do what I do here at this church. Um, the only way I get the job at Trinity is if I have teaching experience. Um, and the only reason I had teaching experience is because God worked in a bad situation at Mount Gilead where I had to step away from being a youth pastor and go get a part-time job teaching. And when it came down to it, there were multiple candidates applying for the job that I wanted at Trinity. And what pushed me over the top was my experience in the classroom teaching. And looking back on it, I think I remember having conversations with, with Tyson and Adam that said, if I don't get this job at Trinity, we're not planning a church because there's no way I can do it financially. Um, there's no way that I, can, that I can do this. And so God, God worked a miracle from my perspective in allowing me to get a job 
and has continued to work goodness in my life, allowing me, the the circumstances that led to my promotion to principal and, and what that's done for our family can only be explained by God and his working. So when I reflect upon these things in my life, it makes the attractiveness of sin decrease greatly because I'm invested in a God who is always with me, always protecting me, always helping me in times of distress. And if I can reflect on those things constantly and keep it at the forefront of my attention that he is a good God who wants what's best for me, then to deviate from what he wants is, is, is not attractive to me anymore. Because to to basically say that this is more attractive than what God wants for me is to lose trust in his goodness. And if I'm constantly refreshing myself in his goodness, then I'm not tempted to really leave and go uh, gallivanting off towards sinful things. I fight sin best by remembering that God is so good and worthy of my trust. Secondly, I can fight sin only when I am willing to renounce whatever hinders or tarnishes the worship of God in my life. If I'm going to fight sin faithfully, I have to be willing to renounce anything and everything that would hinder or tarnish the worship of God in my life. So two implications here from this portion of the text. God helps Jacob fight sin and indifference in his life by reminding him of his goodness. And Jacob incites others to action by informing them of his goodness. And it leads to repentance, and it leads to change, and it leads to um, false gods being surrendered. We fight sin when we're willing to renounce whatever hinders or tarnishes the worship of God in our life. And we see this mindset from the people here. They're willing to give up whatever needed so that they can properly worship God when they reach Bethel. God at work in Jacob's heart. Number two, God at work in the family's hearts. And for our kids, Jacob's family makes sure that they put away their false gods forever. God begins to work in the family's hearts here as they begin to receive this message from Jacob that they are picking up and moving uh, to Bethel. Because remember, they've built more permanent places to live here. We talked about the fact that they didn't just build tents, they built houses here. And so this is a big move for them. Um, And they're leaving what they know. And uh, Jacob is inciting them based on the goodness of God. And God works in their hearts. And going back to their responses here, number one, forsaking sin means renouncing the known threats. Okay, so we see that they surrender the false gods here. And if we're going to forsake sin and choose God faithfully, then it means getting rid of what we know to be a threat in our life. The things that we know have the potential to steal our joy, we get rid of them. We forsake them. These people give up their gods. Forsaking sin means renouncing the known threats. Jacob's family follows the lead of Jacob and they give up their false gods. But number two, forsaking sin means renouncing the possible threats as well. Because not only do they give up the false gods, they give up these earrings as well. You say, well, why are they having to surrender these things? Well, it's it's pretty much accepted that the earrings played a role uh, in some of the false god worship. Um, But maybe even more so than that, in Exodus 32.2, the people want a false god, right? Like, give us a false god. 
So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. In and of themselves, maybe harmless. They're earrings, right? Like they're, they're worn for uh, adornment purposes and they're given as gifts and in and of themselves maybe harmless. But I think you have a step here by the people. Not only are we going to get rid of what we know is a threat, we're going to get rid of even possible threats. Because we get rid of these gods, you go and bury them, we can always make more gods because we got all these earrings from Shechem. And we've been blessed with this gold. And, and they say, you know what, take these two. Lest we be tempted to make a golden calf like our uh, descendants will down the road, take the earrings as well. I mean, they go a step further, not just the gods, but the possibility of making other gods, the things that could be a threat to us, take those things as well. Forsaking sin means renouncing the known threats, means renouncing the possible threats, and it, number three, means planning to not return. Forsaking sin means we make plans to not return to our sin. Jacob hid the false gods from their sight and protected the people from the temptation to return to them. There's not an indication here that Jacob was doing anything with these false gods. It's his family, but he's responsible for his family, and so he weeds them out. But what I love about the text here is that he takes them, and he's the only one that knows where they are, and he buries them. And I think he buries them deep and tells no one where they are, so that even if you get to Bethel and you start to get dissatisfied with the good God that I've told you about and that we're going to worship, you can't go back to those false gods. They're gone and you don't even know how to access them again. And some of us need that. Some of us have sin clinging to us so closely that we've got to forsake the known threats, forsake the possible threats, and put ourselves in such a position that we are so distant from being able to go back to those things that there's a clean break and a complete tearing away and and only one person has the key to go back and it's somebody that doesn't struggle with it, right? Like Jacob says, give them all to me. I'm the one that's gonna bury them. I'm the one that's gonna take care of this and you're not gonna even know where to go if you did want these things back. Forsaking sin, getting rid of the possible threats, the known threats, and making sure that you don't plan to return. You eliminate, you cut off the opportunity to go back to it. The implications for us. To purge the old man, I must remove all known threats and possible threats to my obedience. To be faithful to what Ephesians 4 talks about, about putting off the old man and putting on the new man. To purge the old man, I must remove all known threats and possible threats to my obedience. Secondly, to put on the new man, I must replace the old habits with renewed habits. To put on the new man, I must replace the old habits with renewed habits. Right, so the time that was spent in sin now has to be spent in times of sanctification. Right, they're going to give up their false gods, but they're going to replace that worship with right worship. They're going to go to Bethel, they're going to build an altar, and they're going to give their affection and their joy and their attention to the one who deserves all that glory. They're going to replace these habits for Jacob with a renewed habit, with for some of them, maybe brand new, fresh habits. But Jacob's going to lead them to worship correctly. 
Purge the old man, I remove all the known threats and possible threats. To put on the new man, I replace the old habits with renewed habits. Number three, God at work in the outsider's hearts. For our kids, God protects Jacob's family from their enemies. God protects Jacob's family from their enemies. You'll remember Jacob's big concern is the people are going to kill us for what you have done to Shechem. And God steps in as he always does for his people and works good and prevents evil when necessary. It says, verse 5, as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. First of all, we see God bringing terror upon the people. And this isn't the only time he's going to do this. Like, God is building a nation. Like, we're trying to build a church of 150, and that's hard. God wants to build a nation and have this nation not get crushed by other nations. Um, I used to play a game at Mount Gilead with some of the guys there. Um, I think it was called Tribal Wars. And there's other games that are like this now. This was one of the first ones. And like the goal was to try to build a village and a city and an army. And everybody else, like you're playing this game all over the world with all these other people. And as soon as you got just started getting big enough to be a potential threat, like all these big cities would just come in and crush you, and you had to start all over with the game. And so really the only people that were playing this game well were people that had been there from the very beginning. Newbies like me really could never build their cities because you just get crushed. That's what happens when you try to build a nation, and all these other nations see that happening. They come in and stop it, and they say, you know what, we'll take your stuff. You guys can just be absorbed into us. Remember, that's what Shechem wants to do. Let's just absorb these people. Come marry with us, and we'll marry you, and we'll take your stuff, and you'll be Shechemites. And God prevents this time and time again from them being absorbed in Exodus chapter 15, verse 13. And don't read this as simply the children of Israel, because what we believe in the New Testament is that we're grafted into this, okay? So this is our spiritual history. Even if it's not our national history, this is our spiritual history, Okay? Exodus 15, 13. We can be thankful that God protects these people because Jesus comes from these people. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. This is the song of Moses. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Felicia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 24 and 25. Rise up, set on your journey, and go over the valley of the Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hand Sion the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. So God's leading the children of Israel to attack uh, Sion the Amorite. And he says, when you do this and when you get the victory, it is going to create such a fear in the other people. They're not going to know what to do. They're going to tremble before you. As you go into the promised land, you don't have to fear these people because they're going to be fearful of you. And if you read Joshua 2, 8 through 11, what's Rahab say? We heard what you did to Sion, 
our people are terrified of you. Take me with you. We, are, we, we know we're done. We know you're going to win this. Take me with you. God said he was going to do it, and God fulfills it, and the people are scared to death. The terror of God is upon them. Psalm chapter 105. God building a nation from scratch, a nation that is still around today, right? Like, we don't talk about the Amorites. We don't talk about the Philistines. We don't talk about the Shechemites today, right? We talk about the Israelites. We talk about the Jewish people. God has preserved these people, this nation. Psalm 105, verse 7. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance when they were few in number of little account and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people. He allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. This is God's protection. He brings terror upon people that would seek to destroy his people. And that rings true for us today, right? Like as part of the church, God has promised that nothing will overwhelm the church, that the church will continue until Jesus comes back. So it doesn't matter what legislation is passed and and what laws are made, the church will not be squelched. The church is thriving in countries where it's illegal to be a Christian. The church is thriving in nations where laws are so far from what our laws are. Like we're, we're in panic over the laws that potentially are going to be put into play with, with new presidents and, and what that will mean for Christians. And, and all it's going to mean is our, our quality of life. It's certainly not going to have anything to do with the longevity of the church because the church will not be overcome. God continues to protect his people and he will stop evil when necessary to do so. He brings terror upon the people. Number two, he prevents retaliation by the people. They're scared to death, and they don't do anything. They let them pass all the way to Bethel. No hand can be raised against God's people without his permission. He renders our enemies powerless when needed. And then lastly, this section here in Genesis 35. Number four, God at work at Bethel. And for our kids, the more we know God, the more we love him. God at work at Bethel. So as Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him, there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Skipping down to verse 9. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram, and he blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come for you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoke with him. Jacob set up a pillar in that place. You know what's striking here is that when you read this and you compare it to uh, Genesis 17, In Genesis 28, Genesis 17 is when God's talking to Abram and changes his name to Abraham. Genesis 28 is when God's talking to Jacob um, at the latter scene. There's not any new information given here. None. Like You'd like to read this and say, oh, like this is the first time that we learn that kings are going to come from these guys. No, he said that back in Genesis 17. 
you'd like to say, well, this is the first time we find out the land is going to be given to them. No, that was said in 17 and Genesis 31. Well, why is that significant? Because I think sometimes we think the only way out of our sin is if you give me something that I've never heard before. Like, give me something new to help me fight sin. Give me something new that will lead me to repentance. Give me something new that'll help me find victory. This is the same stuff we've been talking about for years now. It's the same stuff. This is the same stuff that God has already communicated. Well, why does he communicate it again? Because we're hard-headed and don't take what we've already been given and apply it, right? Like we think we need new stuff. Really, we just need the old stuff again. Peter says the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 1, and he doesn't make any apologies for it. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and you're established in the truth that you have, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may able, be able at any time to recall these things. Peter says, I'm not telling you anything new, nor do I plan to. I'm not trying to tell you anything new because you need to be reminded of this stuff because you're not applying it, you're not doing it, or it's not understood by you as deeply as it needs to be understood by you because the reaction by Jacob is different. The reaction is different. Um, and we'll talk about this here in just a second. First of all, worship does not require new experiences or new revelation. Worship does not require new experiences or new revelation. Jacob goes back to Bethel. He's been there before. Abram did something very similar. When he sinned in Egypt and he tucks his tail running because he's, he's lied and he's uh, he's made a mess of that situation. He goes back to where he built his first altar. And Jacob goes back to where he experienced God for the very first time. And he gets a steady dose of reminders. And he gets these promises that are being passed from generation to generation. But for us, worship and obedience doesn't require the fuel of new experiences or new revelation. Right? Like we don't we don't have to find a church that's constantly teaching us new things that we've never heard about in order for it to be a meaningful, worshipful experience. We need constant reminders of the things that we've known since Sunday school for those of us that grew up in church. Because it's the same stuff over and over. I mean, we sang about it this morning. Had I the guilt of all the world is able to forgive, why should I fear the debt is paid if only I'd believe? Right? Like we just simply need to believe the things that we've been told all of our lives for a lot of us. And yet it's so hard to believe them day in and day out because sin can be so tempting. That's why we need to be reminded of the goodness of God. His past goodness is sufficient enough to keep us from sin. But he's the, he's the, he's the good type of God that keeps adding new goodness to our lives. But the old stuff is sufficient. The old goodness of him is sufficient to carry us through. Worship doesn't require new experiences or new revelation. Number two, worship increases as we deepen our understanding of what we already know. Worship increases as we deepen our understanding of what we already know. Back in Genesis 28, 
you see an immature Jacob who has experienced God very little. Because look what his reaction is. After that dream and after he's seen God and gets all these promises from God, it says, then Jacob, Jacob awoke from the sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? He names it Bethel, house of God. When he comes back this second time and he's older and he's experienced God more, he gives it a different name. It says that he calls it El Bethel, which means the God of the house of God. And back in Genesis 31, 13, God reveals himself this way. He says, you go back to Bethel because I'm the God of Bethel. I'm the God of the house of God. And as I was thinking on this and meditating on this this morning, I was thinking about our growth and maturity as believers and how when we're younger, oftentimes we attach worship to an experience, right? Like we, we go to a camp and we come out of it and, we, and we're, we're so impressed with God for what he did at this camp that we went to, right? Like kids that go to Snowbird have this type of experience all the time and they come home and they post on their social media, Snowbird's awesome, God is awesome, Right? Like you go to a disciple now and you come home from a disciple now and you're just like, man, God was real and God showed up and God was awesome. And, and you end up talking more about the place or the person that spoke than you really do about the God that you were worshiping there. Here, he shows back up and has a worshipful experience and it's really more about the God than the place. Because the first time he's like, how awesome is this place? Right? That's, the, that's what most people do when they go to Snowbird for the very first time and they're, they're under Brody's preaching and under the, the worship band there and they walk away and they say, what an awesome place. What a great place to worship God. I put in my notes, a sign, a sign of maturity in a Christian is when they come away from a worshipful experience and they are talking more about the God they worshiped versus the place where they worshiped him. Right? Like, too often times we hear people talking about their church and the worship experience that you can get at their church and you end up hearing more about their church than the God they're supposed to be worshiping at their church. As we grow in our maturity, we can experience worship really in any place and it's more about the God that we're worshiping there than the actual experience because this one isn't as great probably from, from a description standpoint as the ladder and the angels and everything that took place the first time at Bethel. But the, 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 the response by Jacob is far more deeper. He's more impressed with God than the experience. And he says, this is the God of the house of God. So this time around, it's more how awesome is this God versus how awesome is this place. And there's this drink offering that's offered here. Similar language used in Philippians 2.17 when Paul is describing his utter commitment to the church at Philippi. And he says, I'm spilled out or I'm poured out like a drink offering for you people. It's a picture of total commitment. It's a picture of I'm all in. Like I've, I've poured myself out here. Like I've left everything on the table kind of a picture. And that's what he does here. First time he built a pillar. But remember it was followed up with this vow of if you do these things, then I'll worship you. Now he's come back and there's a deepening in his maturity where he's pouring everything out and says, you are my God. You are my God. We've put away the other gods. You are my God and I've committed myself to you now in the way that I vowed to do. It says back in Genesis 35, Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. 
the application for us. Are you faithfully remembering God's goodness and putting away those things that would hinder your worship? Two things. Are you doing what you need to do during the week to remember the goodness of God? And that can look different for everybody. Your scripture scripture memory plan can look different than mine. Your time in the word can look different than mine. Your personal worship during the week can look a lot different than mine. But what has to be there is that you are doing the the necessary things to keep the goodness of God at the forefront of your mind if you're really wanting to forsake sin. Because if the goodness of God is not constantly being reminded to you, then the goodness of sin will deceive you. So I need to remind myself of God's goodness and I need to be faithfully putting away anything else that would hinder me or detract me from the goodness of God and make me think that God isn't good, right? Like it's whatever would play the role of Satan and say, God's not good. He doesn't want you to eat of the fruit that looks the best. Whatever would play that role in my life and have that voice in my life that says, God's not good, God's not good, then that needs to be removed. That needs to be buried so deep and hopefully in a way where I don't know where it's buried to where I don't have access to it again. For our kids, and this is for our families, our parents as well, um, for, our, for our kids that are old enough to do this, um, I think it would be helpful for you to dialogue with them about some of the things that uh, they might be tempted to love more than God as they begin to grow and develop. False gods maybe is still a foreign concept to them, but certainly something that they will begin to experience as they continue to get older identifying some things that might take an unhealthy place in their life and how to recognize those things. And then number two, what are some of the best things that God has done for our family? Because as our kids are growing, they may not have a, a reservoir of God's goodness to draw upon right now, right? Like they, they're, they're young and they don't have the, the memories that we do and they haven't experienced the things that we've experienced. So sharing with them some of the things that you may be shared in your group this morning. These are some of the things that God has done in our family's life. Um, to give them a reservoir to start pulling from. And then as they get older, they're adding to that reservoir. My mom used to have what she called a rainbow book. I think she still does. Um, basically, she, she fell in love with rainbows um, back in the day because she tied it to God's promises and signs of God's promises. And she began, began just to write down every good thing that God did in our family and just began to file those away. And she always had a constant running rainbow book. And a lot of times they had a rainbow cover and Um, She would just constantly file things away daily. These are good things that God has done in our family. Boom, 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 boom. Um, Our kids need a reservoir to pull from. Um, They don't have that right now. And so I would encourage those that have kids old enough that can do this right now uh, to maybe begin sharing some of the good things that God has already done for your family that they can begin to rely upon, see God's goodness, and then filter things that happen in your life moving forward uh, into that bank of goodness. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for uh, your continued work in the lives of people that fail you. Um, we, we thank you for the refreshment that we see in chapter 35, that despite Jacob's indifference and despite the sins of his sons and their retaliation, that you didn't give up on the nation of Israel. Um, God, we're thankful that you, you came to Jacob and you called out his failures and you told him what to do. And God, we're thankful that Jacob was truly repentant in a way that didn't require you telling him everything that he needed to do. That you, 
You made them spiritually sensitive enough to say, these are things that need to be done if we're going to do what God wants us to do faithfully. And so, God, I'm thankful that Jacob led his family to put away false gods and to cleanse themselves and to ultimately put these things so far out of reach that they couldn't go back to them anytime soon. God, we're thankful that you don't give up on people that fail you because all of us in here fall into that category of people who fail you, who need to be reconciled to you regularly. We thank you for the ultimate reconciliation that's already happened, that Jesus has come and has done everything necessary. And all we have to do is believe now. But God, we, we, we thank you that you know that that's difficult for us sometimes. And so God, we're thankful that you shower us constantly with your goodness to incite us back to you, to trust in you. God, I pray that we'd be faithful to remember your goodness, not just the goodness that's found in scripture, but the goodness that's been uh, displayed in our own lives, our own experiences, where we can look back and see traces of you working in our lives because you're always with us in a special way. God, I pray that that goodness would be something that we can pass on to others uh, to help lead them away from sin or to help protect them from future sins as we, as parents, pass these down to our children. God, I pray that you would help us as a church family to do whatever necessary to keep the goodness of you at the forefront of our minds and to put away anything that would hinder our worship towards you. Help us not to be uh, longing and uh, desiring new revelation when we failed to properly apply the old things that you've already given to us. Help us to find satisfaction in being reminded of the things that we've been told for so long. And God, I pray that it would sustain us in the ways that you've promised and that it would keep us persevering in the ways that you've promised. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.